Tonight's talk will be a little bit of a heavy one, so strap in, put on your, uh, your thinking caps. Uh, I'll try to ease you into the, uh, we Theravadan Buddhists like to ease people into the, the pool by the shallow end and then lead you into the heavy shit. If it was Zen, they'd just dump you right into the heavy duty. <laughs> I grew up in a Zen household. When I found Theravada Buddhism, I was like, oh, wow, Buddhism that makes sense to me. Although I love Zen, it's a beautiful practice. So, um, to reflect on some of the things we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks, there are two kinds of suffering or discomfort in life, what the Buddha called dukkha. One is inevitable. And that's what we'll call for tonight pain and discomfort. Pain being the pains of becoming sick, being in a human body, the pains that accrue with age, um, when you stub your toe, the pains of hunger at times, the pains of a headache, the inevitable pains of having a human body. the second kind of inevitable things I'll call emotional discomfort. If we uh, find that a friend has uh, said something critical or we get fired from a job or somebody breaks up with us or uh, we're not invited to some social gathering, whatever, we have this kind of what the Buddha called Vedana, it's like that feeling of being kicked in the stomach or a hollowness in the chest, that feeling of emotional, somatic, physical, uh, often uh, immediate discomfort that arises when an event happens that we don't, uh, that we find disappointing. So Vedana happens before there's any thought there's any choice to add on more, you know, there's no volition in it. It happens with the first arrow, the Buddha said, we get shot with the world. So we might, somebody might say something that we find quite stinging, and so their actual words and that immediate feeling is the first arrow. But then there's the second arrow, the Buddha said, which is the suffering that we add on that's unnecessary. For instance, one form of unnecessary suffering is we believe that we're the only ones. Why does this happen to me? One of the famous uh, stories in the Buddhist canon is of Kisa Gautami, who could never get over the loss of her son because she kept on taking that loss. Um, she, Instead of feeling the loss emotionally, and processing it. She stayed in the story of why does this happen to me? Why am I the one that loss happens to? And the Buddha uh, suggested that she go around and talk to other people uh, uh, who had encountered losses. He did it in a clever way, the mustard seed story. It's worth looking up. But in general, this story that we're the only ones or our suffering is special or the projection into the future it will always be this way, or adding the story that something's wrong, that this is uh, declaring war on life, 
these are the ways that we tend to make, we add on suffering with lots of thoughts, views, opinions, and such. So, in explaining the, the process of how we create suffering, the Buddha was a very causal person, and he tended to look at things in terms of uh, causes and conditions. So causes are the things that directly precede an event and, and are responsible for the event coming to pass. For instance, and I'm going to use something I know nothing about, but like you plant a seed and a plant grows out of the seed. Uh, so that's a cause, right? The planting of the seed. My parents had sex, that's why I exist. That's a cause, right? But a condition is the thing that keeps something going. So the cause of my existence is my parents having sex. The conditions of my existence are the food I eat, the water I drink, the shelter I have, etc., the people that I have that are protective and nurturing or whatever. So those are the things that keep me going. You get that? Causes and conditions. Causes create, conditions sustain and keep things going. So what are the causes and conditions of suffering in our life? The cause is craving for life to be other than it is. Craving for a life where we never experience any pain, even the inevitable pains we don't want to experience. A lot of us will spend a lot of money trying to hide the fact that we've got wrinkles, you know, hide the fact that we've got no hair like me, for instance. You know. <laughs> now, nah, this wasn't done to hide the fact that I'm bald. Is a... <laughs> we'll try to spend lots of money to look and appear uh, in ways that hide and conceal our age. We will, um, we try to avoid. <clears throat> so that's the cause of um, suffering. We want life to be without any pain. We want an inoculation of pain, from pain. And uh, so we begin to crave things that make us feel like there is no pain or make us feel secure so we never have to experience pain. What do we crave? Well, the Buddha said we crave things along the lines of the worldly winds. We crave sensual pleasures that distract us from the inevitable pains and uh, difficult thoughts in our mind. We crave approval from others. That, that makes us feel safe. We crave fame. We crave monetary gain and accumulation. And then we get upset when fame occasionally turns to obscurity, Praise turns to criticism. Pleasure turns to discomfort in the body. Whenever we chase something, we eventually get the opposite of what we're chasing. So that's craving. That's the thing that creates 
the unnecessary suffering in our, in our life. If we simply learn to embrace pain as it arose, discomfort, the, the, the setbacks, frustrations, the separations and losses, if we could turn to it, feel the feelings, hold the experience, we could actually be with it. But instead, the nature of the mind is that it looks to escape, avoid, not be exposed to any pain. And that very desire is what creates all of the needless suffering in our lives. And so the conditions of, uh, that keep suffering going are what the Buddha called, uh, he used the word upadana, and upadana means, it's been translated to mean clinging, but it really means feeding. And the idea is that the mind feeds on things. Craving, tana, actually means thirst. So the Buddha was using a metaphor of thirst and feeding to describe the process of suffering in our life. We thirst for things that give us the illusion we never have to experience pain, the promise of lasting security, the promise of an inoculation from any kind of discomfort. And then, when we find something that seems good, we feed on it. <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> I post selfie. People like selfie. Ooh, this feels good. Give me more. <laughs> That's probably weird for you to look at, but whatever. <laughs> Ooh, since me like this feel good, you know. We feed off of, when we're lonely, we turn on the television. We feed, the mind feeds off of the images. How does the mind feed? It's interesting, the Buddha called that tamayata, the mind shrinks around the thing that gives the pleasure and the feeling of security and power and control, the feeling that we'll never have to experience any pain or discomfort. It shrinks around it. So we, when the TV's on, or when you ever watch yourself when you're on the Facebook, you know... <laughs> There's no body awareness, there's no sounds anymore, there's no nothing. All everything else from the mind is the mind is shrunk around that little laptop screen or that little phone screen people who are now that's the size of this is the size of our awareness. <laughs> Holy shit. I got a, a text from somebody that I saw and was it Tinder Tinder? And they like me, you know. So we feed off of things by sustaining it in the mind and, and keeping the thought about it going and losing track of everything else so we live inside of whatever it is we're consuming. If, it's the, if we're gambling or if we're shopping, we're in the clothes and it's tactile, and it's the clothes, and it's the color, and then it's the credit card. <laughs> and then it's the putting in the thing, and then it's the, this is mine. And then that's feeding. It's trying to sustain and live in, uh, you know, this joy. But what happens is, uh, we feed off of things that have a very, very short 
pleasure lifespan. We feed off of the words, the world's junk food. We don't feed off of the broccoli of life. <laughs> the broccoli rob. The parsnip of life, which is, you know, working with the breath, thoughts of gratitude, service, being kind, calling up, caring, uh, compassion, empathy, reflecting on skillful things we've done, reflecting on times we've enjoyed peace, uh, connecting deeply with others by emotionally revealing difficult stuff and experience and bonding. That's the fucking broccoli of life. Do we go there, though, when we're suffering? No. Where do we go? Facebook. You know, here's a new picture. Or, or we might go to television, or we might go to the stock market to see if we have any... You know, I don't. I know, wouldn't even know what that would be like, but uh, <laughs> so we go to the things that promise immediate feelings of pleasure, immediate feelings of control, and it doesn't matter that these feelings are fleeting. And that what happens is it triggers what's known as the dopamine reward cycle. When we first have thirst or craving. It's like a, a realization that there's stress we're feeling. We're, we're not feeling happy in our job. We're feeling stress. What's the point of it all anyway? I don't know these people. I don't like what I'm doing. I'm stressed. If only I had something that made me feel good right now. Ding. Craving. That releases a jolt of adrenaline, glutamate, uh, possibly a little bit of acetylcholine, so then the mind is like, what could possibly make me feel good? Bing, shopping. We, we go down to the store and we buy something to make our jobs feel like they might, you know, feel better about it or feel better about something else in life. And in the shopping, we release dopamine. But the dopamine doesn't last very long. It goes away and then when the dopamine starts to fade, we need something else. And so we can run in life from one stimuli to another, trying to not feel the underlying stress, not feel underlying feelings of loneliness, confusion, abandonment, self-doubt. We can spend our lives running from these feelings, looking for one thing after another to... Uh, occupy the mind, stimulate the mind, fill up the mind, and then when that thing fades, when it's, it's no longer possible to sustain in our thoughts, in our focus, then we start the cycle again. Craving, feeding, suffering again, craving, feeding. So there's some things we can feed off of that are actually pretty healthy. We can feed off of, you know, breath awareness. That's one thing we did at our meditation. We can feed off of the gratitude, as I said. There are things that we can feed off that are good, but most of the time we don't feed off of them. Now, <clears throat> you might think then that if there is some awakening available to us in life, it would be 
stripping away the unskillful things that we feed off of, learning to just be present with consciousness itself, and that consciousness alone, without feeding off of short-term pleasures, would be the equivalent of awakening. And it would be very simple if that was the case. Unfortunately, and here's where stuff starts getting a little heavy, the Buddha said that, in fact, normal human consciousness in and of itself, even stripped of the unskillful things that we try to fill it up with, isn't capable of true awakening or freedom from suffering. He actually says that consciousness, vinana in the Pali, is actually, in and of itself, even when it's stripped of the objects that it feeds off of, consciousness in and of itself still has agitation to it, still has, um, is born of, he says, craving. It's got craving in it. It's still, it's dependent upon the senses, and it's always looking for something. Even from the very first moment we wake up, our awareness is looking, craving, hungry, thirsty. Now, why is that? Well, actually, it's because of the very nature of the human brain is set up to survive the way the world was 40, 50,000 years ago. We haven't restructured our brains. Uh, evolution hasn't kept track or kept up with the speed of human progress. We now live in lives where we're safe, we're not under threat, but the, the brain still has the bulk of its neurotransmitters, its stress hormones, under the control of an amygdala that's no different than it was during the times of, uh, you know, our hunting and even before hunting and gathering. We're still in brains that have fear mechanisms every bit as strong and thirst mechanisms in the hypothalamus every bit as powerful as it was when we were constantly under threat of our existence and constantly needing to get an edge just to survive. That's the brains we wake up in. Now, fortunately, due to uh, neuroplasticity, we can actually rewire the brain to override the stimulus that comes in from the midbrain, the stimulus that keeps us acting and behaving and reacting as if we are constantly under threat, constantly under attack, constantly being judged, constantly being singled out by the world. The Buddha says that the untrained normal person lives in this, what we'll call, um, default residue mind that's jumpy, thirsty, on guard, wary, worried. And so, in order to get to a kind of consciousness where we can actually, truly liberate ourselves from needless suffering. We need to actually, over time, cultivate practices that will undo this wiring. We need to actually rewire the brain so that we're less constantly living in a, a false perspective. 
all of us, without doing this, will misperceive threats. We'll tend to take strange looks from people as outright criticism. We might tend to be overly reactive in certain situations. We might be easily triggered in one area of our life. And this is simply because of the nature of the mind. So in the, there's a wonderful, um, there's a wonderful sutta where the Buddha lays this out. It's called the uh, Atiraga. And it goes like this. When the mind is thirsty for food, short-term pleasures, or ideas, then sense consciousness arises from it and grows even more thoughts, craving, suffering. So our mind in and of itself, even if we strip out the unskillful stuff, it still will be thirsty. But when the mind has been trained not to be thirsty for food, short-term pleasures, intellectual ideas, consciousness does not land firmly on anything, grow thoughts, and create suffering. This is what the Buddha called transcendent consciousness. And here's where the really trippy stuff comes in. The Buddha says that this consciousness is so profoundly different that it doesn't really exist in the normal kind of constructs of space and time that we do. <laughs> in the Udanas, he says there's no here, there, or in between, no coming or going. In other words, what he's saying is that normal awareness immediately flows through the senses, constantly looking for things to give us an advantage. It looks for people, it looks for uh, sense pleasures. If it can't find that, then it looks for ideas that promise us insights that will give us, uh, make us feel safe. One of this kind of processes is called worrying. When we worry, when we constantly are caught up in thinking of the worst possible outcome that can happen to us, what's happening here? Well, what happens is consciousness wakes up. What's going on right now? Nothing much. Just a bunch of people sitting here, weird guy with tattoos talking. <laughs> if it doesn't find something to look at and cling on to, then it might go to thoughts of, oh shit. What's the most fucked up thing that could happen to me in the future? <laughs> because thinking of these things makes us feel secure. We think, oh, if I figured it out, the worst shit that could happen, I'll be prepared. Of course you won't. But that's the way the mind works. It looks for anything that it will give it a sense of survival advantage because it thinks it's living 40,000 years ago still. So if the mind doesn't start flowing through sense ports or clinging onto ideas, what happens is the mind stays very spacious. It's aware of all the sights, sounds, body sensations, smells, aromas. It's aware of... It's aware of itself, it's aware of the thoughts that are passing through, it's aware of the emotions that are present, but it's not 
landing on any of those things, clinging and feeding. It's just aware of everything. It doesn't feel the need to become compact. When we feed, the mind becomes very small, like around the screen, but when the mind is awoken, it's spacious, it's large, it doesn't need to cling to something for survival. It knows it's okay. It knows it's safe. That's why the Buddha called awakening neither perception nor non-perception. We know what's present, what's going on, the thoughts that are there, but we don't turn them into objects that we follow around and constantly perceive. We just keep aware. The Buddha said that it was so spacious, the mind, that it was almost like being in a kind of vast emptiness. Shunyata was the word he used. Now, the Buddha calls this process uprooting, nakama. In order to get to a mind that doesn't wake up thirsty, doesn't wake up feeling under threat, doesn't wake up into life each time it becomes aware, doesn't wake up with this agenda of, holy shit, I've got to protect myself, I've got to grab something that will give me a survival advantage. We've got to uproot the tendencies of craving. So I'm going to tell you how to do that. For no extra charge. <laughs> if I was a commercial, I'd be, and for 1995, not only will I give you the nature of awakening, <laughs> but in three easy installments, I'll also send you... No! You get it all for free. We spell it all out. We don't keep anything hidden. So, uh, one note. If you want to have a more in-depth description of what awakening looks like, I can't give it to you. One, because I don't acknowledge by any means that I'm personally awoken. At most, I've experienced glimpses of my mind experiencing far less stress and far more peace than I've ever imagined it was capable of. But for another reason, too, it's impossible to describe. Why? Because it's like trying to relate to somebody what it's like when pain suddenly stops. How can you describe that? How can you describe that feeling of when you've been in a depression for a long time and then suddenly you wake up one day and you're no longer in a dark mood? How can you describe that? It's a feeling. It's a state of being. It transcends words. The state of awakening, from my understanding, from my years of studying with Buddhist monks, being their attendants, hanging around, you know, listening to every word of every talk, is that it's um, an experience that is beyond any kind of joy that's possible to describe. But that it's not something that I can't paint you a picture of. So some of the practices that create the likelihood of a mind that doesn't, um, that doesn't needlessly create craving. The Buddha had a list. It's called the Eightfold Path. There's a lot of things to remember if you memorize the Eightfold Path, so I'm not going to give you eight. I'm going to simplify them. The first two is simply in your life, 
begin to be aware on a moment-by-moment basis where you are creating needless suffering in the way you are greeting your experience. For example, when we add the perspective, this isn't right, this is wrong, life should be different, this will always be bad, anytime we start adding the the story that life should be other than it is, or B, that we are being singled out for pain and suffering, these types of thoughts create suffering. They do not help us deal. As I was telling last week, I spent three days trying to get a good banh mi sandwich. (laughs) And uh, the final day, I finally got one. I sat there in the park. Right when I was about to eat it, a pigeon shot on my head. (laughs) And right on my head. Straight down, like like this. And, uh, And... at that moment in time, that's where the intersection of where needless suffering can happen. The shit on my forehead is inevitable pain in life. You will be shat on in this world. I was not being singled out. That's a human experience, being shit on by the universe. It might not be a pigeon for you, It'll be some way that you will be shit on in the next week. A train door will close in your face. Somebody will elbow you. You'll be stuck with somebody who's uh, a pain. Something will happen where you will be shit on by the universe. And at that moment, you can either go, What the fuck did I do? Fuck you. Why me? In which case, all you're doing is adding suffering and you're not cleaning the shit off of your forehead. (laughs) Or there's the simple cleaning the shit off of the forehead and just eating your delicious banh mi. (laughs) So that's everywhere in life. Just note where we're adding the story that it should be different, it should be otherwise, this is unfair. Now, I'm not talking about, obviously, politics. Uh, obviously, the world is a vastly uh, awful place. There's a lot of crime, uh, exploitation. There's a lot of harm. There's a lot of horrible, horrible actions done by people in power. And yes, on that level, by all means, become enraged. Do any you know uh, protest that you need. But on your own level, in your own life, in your own experience... This is what I'm talking about. There's a difference. The socio-political and the personal, in terms of the way the mind adds on to personal experience, are two completely different things. So, um, for instance, if somebody came up to me and, being a Buddhist, started saying inflammatory things about Buddhism, which, like, that's going to happen, but if that happened... On the one hand, I could take action in, in the world. But in terms of dealing with the personal pain that arises, I don't add the story, why me? Why is this happening to me? This isn't right that I should have somebody be unskillful towards me. I take the action in the world, but in my own mind, 
I locate where I'm adding needless stories and not simply feeling the feelings, allowing them to rise, creating a safe container, allowing them to part. The second set of things that will help us from uh, needlessly creating thirst in the mind, craving, is a dedication to being harmless. Not just to other beings, but towards ourselves. Most people, when they hear harmless, we of course go to the precepts about not killing, stealing, not uh, uh, inappropriate sex, not uh, taking intoxicants to the point of inebriation, all that. But more so, we often cause harm to ourselves by taking on too many obligations, by trying to do too much in the world, by leaving too little space in our lives for any ease, comfort, calm, peace. Right livelihood doesn't mean just not having a livelihood that harms other people. It also means having a livelihood that doesn't harm yourself. A lot of people come to New York and it's a very, very... I've lived here all my life and I have to say it's a place where there's a lot of pressure to achieve, do. When you see people here at a gathering, everybody's like, what do you do? Uh, I, I mean, you know, it's not even enough that we have a job. We also have to be writing a book <laughs> and a play about to be put on. You know, everybody has to be do, do, doing. And what happens though is we don't leave any space for taking care of ourselves and for nurturing the important relationships in our lives. If we learn not to cause harm to ourselves and to other beings, we actually live in a, in a mind that's much less defensive or at war with the people around us. And finally, the third part is training the mind to feed off of things that are skillful. You don't need to do this all the time in your meditation. If you find it difficult to meditate, by the way, listen to a guided meditation. I like Tara Brock's. You can find it on her website or our website. We have tons. But training yourself to feed off of what's present, the breath, using metta, using reflections of generosity, kindness, times you've been virtuous. Feed the mind off of the body, relaxing the body. Yoga practices are wonderful to train the mind to become embodied and to feed off of that sensation. So anything you can do to train the mind to not seek things that are not present, but to always feed on stuff that's unconditionally available, that creates a mind that's less thirsty. And when you do this, you actually create the very strong likelihood that you will wake up in an entirely different consciousness. A consciousness that's spacious, open, appreciative, that takes in life and all of its beauty without needing to constantly look for something that gives you an edge or a sense of control. You'll even be able to be in a mind that will hold the inevitable pains of getting older, experiencing frustrations and losses because you have cultivated. I thank you for listening. hope there was something worthwhile in there. And uh, so for those of you that want to leave now, uh, if you can uh, contribute so we can pay the rent, I'd be very, very appreciative. <laughs>